Amen. God does certainly uh, provide for us so well, and he provides us his word, his word of truth, the words of life that Jesus has. And uh, we'll consider his word together today from the book of Second John. Would you stand as we read God's word? This is God's holy word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would illumine it in our hearts, that you would open our minds and hearts to receive your word and our wills to respond. Uh, Give us a soft and receptive disposition this morning and Grant the work of your Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now this letter is written by the Apostle John. John, who you might consider Jesus' best friend, one of the great leaders of the early church, and he's writing a personal letter uh, to a woman who is called here the elect woman or the chosen lady. Uh, Some have supposed that this might be a metaphorical reference to a church, uh, the church being the bride of Christ, for numerous reasons. That's probably not the best way to look at it, but it's most likely a real woman, a woman to whom John is writing, one called the elect woman, called so because she's been one who's been chosen by God to come to faith in Jesus. That is, she's now John's sister in Christ. And just imagine uh, the beauty. If you were, say, such a woman, and you're receiving a letter from one of the greatest leaders of the church in your day, a personal letter, an encouragement that's coming to you from the great Apostle John, you would uh, look closely at this letter, you would consider how personal it is to you and receive much from it. Now, the Holy Spirit intended this letter John wrote not just to be for the benefit of this woman, but for you and I as well. And just as much as she would have seen this personal letter to her from John, 
we can see this letter as a personal letter God's also intending for us. And as we learn of what John wrote to her, we hear an encouragement from God to our hearts as well. Further, we actually learn in this letter how we can speak to one another and encourage one another in the church following John's example. This letter has two main sections. He starts off with a greeting and then uh, he encourages the woman and then he offers a caution to the woman. Kind of two parts, encouragement and caution. You could imagine if you were writing to a child you had off in college, you would include these two parts as well. You would encourage them saying, work hard at your studies, uh, keep on the right path, make sure you stay connected to a good local church. And you might caution, hey, don't get caught up in the wrong crowd. Don't get in the habit of skipping classes too much. Watch out for those that would pull you away. We can also hear an encouragement and a caution to us in this letter. Uh, But this encouragement and caution comes from a particular disposition, which we'll learn in this greeting. So take a look with me at verse 1. John writes, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. John's saying, I love you in the truth. That is, I love you in the truth of the gospel. I love you as a sister in Christ, one whom I am connected to in the body of Christ. He loves her as a sister. He begins speaking the truth In love, verse 2, he says, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. The truth here that's within us is the Holy Spirit. The truth that will be with us forever. This spirit that we all share as brothers and sisters in Christ. He greets her in verse 3, saying, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. That is, this grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and love. As we walk in truth and love together, we experience grace, mercy, and peace. And John blesses this woman that grace would be given to her, that mercy would be given to her, that peace would be given to her. And so right off the bat, we see John's overall disposition to this woman in this letter is one of tenderness, of warmth, and of love. And we can learn that as we want to be people that speak well to one another, that encourage one another in the faith, that perhaps caution and warn one another, that it all comes in the context of this loving community. Because if we really understood the connection we have as members of the same spiritual family, a connection closer even than our physical flesh and blood, we would have that familial warmth and love for one another. And in that soil of familial warmth and love, we can speak into each other's lives in profound and helpful ways, just as John speaks to this woman. Let's consider the encouragement that he gives her. Take a look with me at verse 4. He says, It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. John rejoices. Some of this woman's children, they're walking in the truth. They're also part of the spiritual family. Now, he does say some of your children, meaning not all of her children were walking in the truth. Now, this might just be that John doesn't know all of her children, uh, but it more likely means that um, a previously unconverted family, some of the children have come to faith in the Lord. And this is worth rejoicing in. Now, we do bemoan when 
our children don't follow the Lord and walk in his ways. It's a grief. It's one of uh, the great pains a parent can bear. But at the same time, it is a joy when any child has come to know and trust Christ as their savior. We often think in our church, we wish we had more adult conversions, which is a good thing to desire, but let's not overlook the miracle that occurs when any child comes to truly trust Christ in their heart, to acknowledge him as their Lord and Savior. And so we can praise God and delight in confessions of faith, children that have come to own Christ, to make um, sure of their baptism and following him in their whole heart. This is worth rejoicing in. Because you see, God doesn't owe us the salvation of any of our children. It's not our right that we can demand of him. And yet to see grace touch anyone, none of us are deserving of the least of God's grace. And yet that he gives it, all glory be to Christ. Verse 5, he says, Now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. John says, this is the command you've had from the beginning. That is the, the beginning of your instruction in the faith. One of the foundational truths you were taught as you were first being instructed in the principles of Christianity were to love one another. This is a basic, perhaps the basic command of the Christian life. This command of love summarizes the law. Romans 13, 8 to 10 says, uh, Paul writes there, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, and here he's going to list some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. John says all these commands, and the Jews used to count uh, 613 commands in the Old Testament, but every command relating to our relationships with one another are are fulfilled and summed up in this command to love it's a holistic command but yet a command that has specific and concrete actions associated with it paul listed some of the ten commandments to not commit adultery to not steal to not murder these are all specific ways that love is expressed because love is love is not a controversial concept in our world Uh, We don't take heat from others when we say, hey, we're about loving our neighbors and loving others. But the problem is that often love can be such a vague and nebulous, amorphous concept in society, a love that doesn't have any definitions or parameters. But we're called to love specifically, to love specifically by following the will of God, keeping his commandments. That's what he says in verse six. John says, this is love. Okay. So in John's mind, if you want to know what love is, this is what he says. It is that we walk in obedience to his commands. That is in obedience to the commandments of Christ. As you've heard from the beginning, the command is that you walk in love. And what did Jesus say on that Mount saying farewell to his disciples, but that they were to go into all the earth, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything Christ had commanded, teaching to observe the commands of Christ. That's what it means to follow the path of love. Now we know and recognize that we can learn love from the 10 commandments. That's what a loving society would look like, one following God's laws. But we especially learn love from the example of Christ. 
Jesus said in John 16, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you, as I have loved you. That's the way you are to love each other. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's lives for one's friends. Laying down our lives for each other, that's love. Now, I would often think, okay, maybe this is like some dramatic example. And I would actually often think, I actually think I would do this. You know, if, a, if one of the children here fell into a raging river, I think I'd jump in and try to save them, even if I lost my life. I think I'd be willing to lay down my life out of love for others. But then I think, well, am I every day showing that I'm willing to lay down my preferences for others? Am I willing to lay down uh, my uh, things I want and desire? Am I willing to lay down my time for others, my energy for others, uh, to give my money for the sake of others? When this hits us in the practical areas of life, we realize how uh, easily and quickly we fall short. Uh, maybe you've gone on a road trip this summer, driven some, somewhere with the family, and you see uh, these, this self-preferential bias pop up so quickly as soon as you say, hey, where should we stop for lunch? And one goes, oh, I think we should get some McDonald's. The other says, no, I hate McDonald's. We should get some Panda Express. I was like, no, that's terrible. We should get Chipotle. And everyone's fighting for their own desires instead of laying down their preferences for each other. We're called to value others above ourselves, to follow again Jesus's example, as we hear in Philippians 2, where we're called in humility to value others above ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but the interests of others. That is, love looks like so valuing other people, considering them so significant and weighty and important that we are constantly seeking their good, constantly seeking to do good to them, to see that they flourish in their lives. We recognize when we do this well, when we perhaps host friends or family who are uh, from out of town. We really look to their interests and desires. Uh, My family, we're going to be flying back to Vancouver, Canada uh, to visit my family. And even already, you know, my mom is messaging me saying, what what meals would you like me to make when you guys come out? Uh, What places would you like to go see? What friends would you like to go visit? Because when you value someone's presence coming to stay with you, you're not thinking, what do I want to do? If you're hosting, you're thinking, what, what sites do you want to go see? What places do you want to go? And this is the attitude that we want to carry with us every day to consider, how can I do good to each person in my family? How can I do good in my place of employment to seek the best of my boss, the best for my coworkers, and not just what's best for me? We're called to follow this way of love in all areas of life. And again, this love is not just some disembodied feeling. Oh, I feel like I love everybody. No, it takes specific, tangible qualities. I was actually reflecting on just the example of the different ways we see Jesus loving people in his ministry. And I was reminded of um, that, that famous marriage book where it studies what they call five love languages, right? That we can all have uh, different ways that we naturally um, express love, whether through, through, uh, through tender touch or through words of affirmation, uh, through acts of serving others, giving gifts to others, or spending quality time with others. I was just reflecting on how Jesus loved in every way. He loved holistically. Remember how Jesus, he touched people. He even touched those who were called impure. He laid his hands on them. He took the little children in his arms. Jesus spent time with people. He supped with them at their houses. 
He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He spent time with his disciples every day. He spoke words of truth and life and encouragement into people. He served people. Does not Jesus wash his disciples' feet? Their dirty, dusty feet. And we're told that in his ascended state, Jesus Christ gives gifts to the church. He gives the gifts of apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers. Jesus loves in every way, and we're called to love in an embodied way as well. A life of embodied relational love following the way of Jesus. Now, we're called to this way of Christ obeying, uh, commandment-keeping, and loving service. But John has a caution for the woman as well. He wants to encourage her in this basic command of love, but he has a caution for her as well. We look at verse 7. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. So John's warning this woman against a particular type of false teacher and a particular false teaching of which we get some hints at what it is in our text. He warned that these people don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. That is, they might acknowledge Jesus perhaps as a spirit or an angel or a power, but not as a man. Not as that human, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter uh, turned a state rebel, crucified uh, by the governing powers. They didn't acknowledge that Jesus, but some um, angelic, spiritual Jesus. And it says they also, secondly, they don't continue in the teaching of Christ. So they reject the specific human Christ, and therefore they reject the teachings of this specific human Christ. Here we can see something that helps us, I think, to spot what can be destructive, um, theologically liberal ideologies when they come our way. There's always a move in liberalism to reject the particular in favor of the universal. To leave behind specifics uh, that are, that those are too nitpicky. You're trying to be too careful. You can't really figure that out. And to move towards, let's just have general concepts. Vague generalities. So instead of a specific Jesus, God's son, living on earth, teaching his commands, died and risen again, we have a a cosmic Christ. It's the Christ in all. The Christ in you, in me. The Christ who you find in Buddhism. The Christ you can find in Hinduism. The Christ principle that's all around. It's a Christ without flesh. A Christ without definition. And because there's a move from a specific to a universal, so with love. You move from specific commandment-keeping love to vague sentimentality. Ideas of um, just a generalized uh, brotherly love in the world. And this doesn't help us. We lose the specific authority of the words of a specific Christ. You might pick up on this sort of ideology if you hear people say things like, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, my Jesus would approve of these sorts of things. Well, my Jesus told me that it's okay 
if I live this way. It's a loss of the particular authority of the word of God as delivered through the mouth of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So beware and watch if you're ever being pulled into vagueness away from particularness. We should take note in our own hearts that if the Christianity we're being called to is one that fits in perfectly with the system of values we encounter in this world, we should uh, be forewarned. Because we should expect that wherever the gospel goes, the teachings of Christ, they will rub up against cultural values wherever they may be. There's going to be pressure points in every culture where the cultural norms are great against the grain of scripture. Now, there's some cultures that uh, where lying is not only accepted, but expected. You're actually supposed to lie in many scenarios. And the commandments of the Bible to not lie, they make no sense. They say, that's silly. We should get rid of those commands to tell the truth. There's other cultures in the Middle East where forgiveness is considered disgraceful. You ought to hold grudges against your enemies and hate them. What sort of silly God would call people to forgive? Now, we don't have as much of an issue with forgiveness in our culture in that same way. But we expect the Bible's going to grade against our autonomous sense of sexuality, that we can do and ought to be able to do whatever we want with whomever we want as long as there's consent. But the Bible's always going to hit against something in our culture. So expect it. It's not odd that there's ways we should feel out of sorts with the current uh, currents. We should expect that if we're following a particular God who gave us a particular word, calling a particular people, that he's going to have a way of life for us to follow. That's not what everyone else does. John says in uh, no uncertain terms that such a person is the deceiver and the antichrist. It is antichrist to negate the specific words of Christ, the teachings of Christ to obey as we find them in scripture. He says in verse 9, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It's not enough just to say, I love Christ. You have to obey Christ's commands. That's what he called us to. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. And truly, bad beliefs do lead to bad behaviors. And John is warning the select woman against that. He says, watch out in verse 8 that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. He doesn't want her to be taken in, her to be taken captive by these vain philosophies and ideologies but to hold fast to the truth of love, but the love which consists of following the teachings of Jesus. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. That's not to say that this woman wasn't supposed to be polite or acknowledge these teachers, but that she wasn't to welcome them in the hospitality of her home. That is, she wasn't to support them in their ministry. She wasn't to support their teaching ministry in that area by giving them food and lodging. She wasn't supposed to, in a sense, financially uphold a ministry that was pulling people away from Christ. He warns her of the danger of these false teachers and is reminding her of the way of obedience to Jesus. And he concludes in verse 12 saying, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Doesn't this neat? Paul or John writing all these years ago, long distance communication via the written word. 
He knows it's not sufficient and it's not enough. He knows that the joy comes in face-to-face relationships. And so for us, even as much as we delight that we can communicate long distances, whether through audio, video, writing, there's nothing like the joy of face-to-face. We're seeing my family next week, as I said. We've been away from them for about a year. And as much as we love being able to video chat them, we know that's going to be such a joy to be in each other's presence face-to-face. Yes, it's not that we can never speak words of encouragement or caution um, without being face-to-face. Some people say, well, unless you're willing to come talk face-to-face, you can never say anything. No, John says something, but he knows the fullness, the best, is going to come in face-to-face relationship. He says, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Uh, John might have known uh, the sister of this woman, perhaps in Ephesus where he was. Perhaps her children were working in Ephesus. He sends her greetings. What a great encouragement John gives this woman to continue this life of love, of following the ways of Jesus, his example, his commandments and teachings. But we recognize that we so quickly fall short of this kind of love, don't we? We so quickly are concerned with our own preferences, our own desires. We so quickly are willing to just go with what we feel is right, to do what is right in our own eyes, to follow our own wisdom. And that's why Jesus doesn't only show us the path of true love, but he empowers us to love truly. In his death, Jesus breaks the power of sin. He breaks the power of that selfish self-interest that keeps us from being able to fully lay down our lives for others. And in his risen estate, he sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to a new way of life, to reflect the love of the Savior who died for us, who rose for us, and who reigns for us. And therefore, this is no hopeless mission. The Holy Spirit empowers our love. Our life-laying-down, commandment-keeping love. It's no fruitless pursuit. And so daily as we fail, we go to God for forgiveness on the finished work of Christ. But we go to God for power based on the reigning Christ, the spirit he's given, to live this way. Jesus died and rose so that we could love like he did and know the love of a reconciled Heavenly Father. The love of Christ, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, it compels us. It compels us to live not for ourselves, but for him who died and for our sakes was raised. And so the deeper we go into the love of God, as we follow Paul in Ephesians 3 and seek to know the unknowable love of Christ that passes knowledge, the knowledge of his love transforms us to be people of love. To follow Ephesians 5, 1, where we're called to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we're ever tempted to doubt God's love for us, we need look no further than the cross of Christ, where his blood was poured, his body broken for us. We even see week by week just the symbols of the elements here that stand beside the word of God to remember Christ's body is broken, his blood is shed for sinners like you and me. And not only are we forgiven, but we're we're being reformed, renewed as a community of love. Isn't it said in scripture, they will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. So let's love our neighbors as ourselves, following the example of our great loving Christ who's given himself for us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are love. We thank you that through Jesus, we can be confident that you love us better than any parent here loves their children. You love us fully and completely. You have loved us sacrificially as we've seen in Christ. And you love us still. Broken people though we, though we be, consistently failing though we be, you love us and you are renewing us in the image of Christ. We ask you for power to love, power to follow Christ's example of loving people holistically, of loving people and following the commandments of Christ, in laying down our lives, in looking for the interests of others above ourselves. Lord, help us, we pray. Empower us, help us to daily depend on you for new stores of grace, to live this high life of discipleship, this life of self-denial, cross-bearing, of Christ-following love. And let us never forget all that you've done to make this a reality for us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's stand as we um, have God seek to bless us. I'll pray a prayer of blessing over you.